And now, to try to define more clearly what we mean by experience of God. And here I want to introduce a theme which will be basic to everything I have to say, and that is that human nature is constituted of body, soul, and spirit. In the recent theology for many, many centuries, we have a body-soul psychology. But in St. Paul, it is body, soul, and spirit, soma, suki, and pneuma. And it's fundamental in St. Paul's outlook. And that continued in the second century with St. Irenaeus, in the third century with Origen. But after that, the body-soul took over. And the disadvantage of that is this, you see, that you get the idea that a human being is a body-soul, a psychosomatic unity, as good as far as it goes. But then God is something beyond, totally transcendent. And you have this gap between yourself and God. But once you introduce the spirit, the spirit is the point where the human person is open to the spirit of God. St. Paul says it beautifully, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, our human spirit, that we are children of God. Only at that point of the spirit to be become aware of ourselves as children of God, you see. It's the point of openness. So every human being has a physical being, which we share with the rest of the physical universe. We're part of the physical universe. And every human being has a psychological character. Senses, feeling, imagination, reason, will, total psyche. That is common to us all. And many people think that that's where the human being ends, with the physical and the psychological. But according to St. Paul and the whole Oriental tradition, beyond the body, beyond the soul, is the pneuma or the atman. In Sanskrit, it's the atman, the inner spirit, the self. And that is the point of human self-transcendence. And I would like to mention here that to me, the one theologian in the West today who really opens on the Oriental tradition, though he doesn't know much, I think, about it, is Karl Rana. You see, in his theology, he bases it all on the understanding that the human being is constituted by the capacity for self-transcendence. Beyond ourself, beyond our ego, we have this capacity to go beyond and to experience what he calls the holy mystery. And that is precisely the oriental point of view, and that is also St. Paul's point of view. Beyond your body, beyond your soul, you have this point of the spirit, which is actually God's spirit acting in you. And at that point, you're open to the transcendent reality, to the one being, to God himself. So this is the key, do you see. And when we speak of the experience of God, we don't mean a physical experience or a psychological experience, but experience of God in the spirit. And that is what we mean in our Christian tradition by contemplation. It's not merely in the psyche, it's in the spirit. And St. Paul makes a clear distinction between anthroposuchikos, the man of a psyche, the man of the soul, and anthropos pneumaticos, the man of the spirit, of the pneuma. And for him, the psychic man is the natural man without grace, you see. But the spiritual man is the man who is awakened to the reality of God. So, when we speak of spiritual experience, we mean experience of God in the spirit, beyond word and beyond thought. And this is the problem, you see. 
You have to go beyond words and you have to go beyond thought. And at that point you experience this inner unity, this non-dual reality. You see, the rational mind always thinks in terms of duality, subject and object, mind and matter, body and soul, time and space and so on. All these are the categories of the rational mind, very valuable and necessary in their place, of course. We don't discard them. But you have to go beyond those dualities. And as you enter into the spirit, into contemplation, you transcend the dualities, you transcend reason and logical thought, and you open yourself to the direct experience of the spirit within. And that is the unifying experience, you see, the unity. So that is what we are seeking, how to go beyond reason. And to a large extent, you see, our Western world and our Western church is dominated by the reason, the logical reason. And it has its great value, of course, and one can't discard it. But it's absolutely necessary to go beyond. And I think, you see, all over the world today, as I mentioned, you see, people are seeking this consciously or unconsciously. They want to get beyond the body, beyond the psyche, and experience this spirit within, the interior experience of the spirit. That is what people are looking for. And I think the hope of humanity is that they're awakening to this spiritual reality which is taking place all over the world. So that is the first and fundamental thing, that the whole of life is orientated towards the experience of God, and the experience of God is an experience of God in the spirit. Though I should mention, and this is important, you never separate the spirit from the soul and the body. Man is a, an integrated whole, and nothing is experienced in the spirit which doesn't have its repercussions in the body and the soul. As you know, they now study people in meditation and see its effects on the brain waves. You have the alpha and the beta waves and so on. And so it has a physical effect. And obviously on the psyche also, it has an emotional effect. It has an effect on one's whole mind. It ch changes it. But the source is in the spirit. And one must go beyond the body, beyond the mind, discover the source in the spirit. And that point of the spirit is the point of integration of the human personality. We're not fully human until we discover this point of the spirit where we're in communion with God. You see, the illusion is to think man is just this psychosomatic person, which is simply the ego, the ego personality. And that is our lower person, you see, and it's what we have to get beyond. And the true man and the true self is not in the body, not in the soul, but in the spirit. That is where we become ourselves. And in the Hindu tradition, of course, the Atman, the spirit, is the self. It's your true self. And you're not your true self as long as you're an isolated individual. Only when you go beyond your ego, your isolated and empirical self, and awaken to the transcendent self, which is your real being, your being in God, in Christ, in the spirit. You see, that is what we're seeking. So this point of the spirit is a point of the integration of the human personality. And that is for everybody. The spirit is present in every human being. It may be totally concealed. They may never discover it, but it's always there. And without it, you're not fully human. See, it is the point of human fulfillment. 
And so it's this point of integration. But the next thing is this, that when we reach that point of the spirit, we experience ourselves in unity with the rest of mankind. As a body, we're all separated. Every body is a different physical structure, and we're all different, and all racial differences and national and language, all these things come from our bodily differences, and you can never get over those. And psychologically, we're all different. Men and women are different, and Asians and Europeans are different. There are psychological differences, and each human being has its own psychological characteristics, and we're all different. And only when we go beyond the body and beyond the soul, the psyche, to that point of the spirit, do we find our point of unity with mankind. And I think this is very serious, you know, that the unity of mankind can never be attained on the level of the body and the soul. Only when people awaken to the spirit can they find this genuine unity where they are one with one another. And so that is the second thing. We find ourselves, and we find ourselves in this communion with others, in this oneness. And then thirdly, beyond that, not only do we discover our unity with mankind, we discover our unity with the whole creation. And this is a very profound experience. As you go beyond yourself, you become aware of your links with the whole creation, with the earth, with the planets, with the stars, with the galaxies. And again, you know, this very interesting that modern physics now sees matter as a field of energies which is totally interdependent. The person I rely on in these things is Fritjof Capra. Most of you will know his Tower of Physics, and a still more important book, The Turning Point, where he applies this knowledge of the physical world to psychology, medicine, and economics, as saying how it's going to transform the whole of our way of life. The physical universe is conceived, as he calls it, a web of interdependent relationships. There is nothing in the world that is not dependent on everything else. Francis Thompson wrote a poem, Move but a wing and stir a star. The smallest movement on Earth has its repercussions throughout the universe. It's an extremely profound view that the whole is present in every part, and we're all linked with the whole cosmos. And so we're parts of this cosmic whole, and in meditation, in this experience of the spirit, we go beyond our human limits and we discover our link with the whole created world, with the whole universe. And here, of course, you see, we link up with the Oriental tradition, particularly the Tibetan. Again and again, they try to relate to all sentient beings. It's not simply human beings, all sentient beings throughout the whole universe. You'd put yourself in harmony with the universe. So at that point of the spirit, we integrate ourselves, we integrate ourselves with the whole of humanity, we integrate ourselves with the whole cosmos, and we're returning to the source, you see, to the center from which we've all come. So that is the goal, really, of this whole Eastern tradition, to help us to rediscover ourselves, our true self. And in doing so, I feel we can rediscover the meaning of the gospel for us today. You can think of sin and the fall as essentially 
a fall from this unity vision. We were created in unity with God and to see the world in the light of God. And sin and the fall are falling away from the unity vision into the dualities. We're exposed to dualities, conflicts all the time. And redemption or atonement, at one is the restoration of mankind and the universe to its original unity. And that is the work of the gospel, that is the work of the church, to restore mankind to its unity with the whole creation and with the whole of humanity. And that is what St. Paul means by the new creation. He has that marvelous vision that the whole creation groans in travail, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. The whole creation is moving towards this unity, but it can only take place when mankind is redeemed, when man rediscovers his unity in God, in Christ, and then the creation itself takes part in this experience of God. The whole creation is taken up into the life of God. And then mankind comes together in this unity. And as I said, I do not see any way in which mankind can be really united unless we reach that level of spirituality. And that is why it seems to me this is such an important stage in human history in which we're living, that people are awakening all over the world to this spiritual dimension and are discovering that we can get beyond our psyche, beyond these dualities, and can awaken to the unity of the spirit. And that is taking place all over the world. And that, to me, is the hope of the future. Really. So sin separates us from this unity vision and plunges us into this world of dualities, of conflict, of disintegration. And the redemption in Christ restores us to that lost unity, restores mankind, restores the creation to unity in the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is the body of humanity. And Paul speaks of Christ, the second Adam, and the fathers conceived Adam is humanity, is man. And through sin, Adam is disintegrated. St. Augustine says, Adam, when he fell, his limbs were scattered over the earth. The man was divided, disintegrated, and we're all living in this disintegrated state. And Christ, the new Adam, the second Adam, comes to put all these limbs together to reunite the body of humanity to make humankind one body in himself. And then in Christ and through Christ, we return to the Father. We return to the source of all, you see, the origin. So we can try to see how our whole human life is this work of the Spirit, which is present in the whole creation, present in all humanity, in every human being. The Holy Spirit is present at work, whether they ignore it or deny it or whatever, that spirit is present to them. And that spirit is moving creation and humanity towards this unity in Christ. And then as humanity and creation comes together in Christ, we return to our source. We rediscover the source from which we've come. We pass beyond the dualities and we enter into that final absolute unity, the unity of, of the Father. And so I think we can interpret, as I say, our Christian faith in the light of this Oriental tradition along those lines. I hope we can go into more detail to see, particularly from a Hindu point of view, how this Oriental vision, 
how it's articulated, how it's developed in the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, and the tradition of Vedanta, and then see how it relates to our Christian faith. And in doing this, I think we have to do very much what the Greek fathers did to Greek philosophy. They didn't just take it as it stood. They interpreted it in the light of their Christian faith. And we have to do the same. You can't just take over Vedanta or Mahayana Buddhism or Taoism. You have to interpret it in the light of Christ. And that, I feel, will be the task of the church for maybe the coming centuries. It's a huge task. But we're all engaged in it in some way now, I feel. We've all called to open ourselves to the Oriental tradition and try to see our Christian faith in its light. And many of us now have experienced this over many years. And the very important discovery has been that the more one goes into the tradition, the more one deepens one's Christian faith. Many people are afraid, you see, of a kind of syncretism that you simply mix the different religions. But those who do it seriously discover that you assimilate, you get a new perspective on the gospel. You see it from a new point of view, and it's deepened and enriched by it. And so there is a continual movement of opening to the Hindu, the Buddhist, and the Taoist, and then rediscovering Christ, the Holy Spirit, in a new light. And that is what we have to seek. It's the work of the church as a whole, how to integrate, you see, all this Eastern tradition into our own life. And it's a mutual thing. As we open ourselves to the Oriental tradition, we hope that the Oriental, the Buddhist, the Hindu, opens himself to the Christian vision. But then, of course, our Christian vision must be presented to him in a way that's meaningful. And at present, it is not, you see. The way the Christian faith is presented to the Hindu in its Western form has very little meaning for him. That's why there are practically no conversions, you know. From the educated Buddhist or Hindu, you get practically no conversions. I say there's only 1% of Asia, but even that 1%, it's mainly among the uneducated tribal people or Harijans, as we call them, the former untouchables in India. The number of caste Hindus, educated and pious Hindus who convert is, is negligible almost. See, so this is the challenge that we must present our faith to Asia in terms which Asia can understand. And that means we've got to understand the Asian tradition and then we hope they also will begin to understand our Christian tradition. And so there will be a, a coming together of the different religions of the world. And that's what we must hope, a convergence. And I often describe the process in terms of the fingers on the palm of the hand. The fingers represent the different religions. Let's say Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. And Buddhism is miles from Christianity, you see, on the surface. But as we go deeper into any tradition, we begin to converge. And the deeper you go into your own tradition, the more you discover the depth of the other traditions and you begin to discover the source from which they come. There's a convergence on the source, and that is what we have to seek. But syncretism is mixing at this level. You take a bit of Hinduism and Christianity and mix them together, and that is syncretism. But ecumenism, or the path of convergence, is when we go to the depth of each tradition and discover ourselves in the depth of the spirit, you see, at that center of unity. And that is our final goal. The Holy Spirit is at work in the whole creation, in the whole of humanity, drawing all men and all things to unity in Christ. 
And as we come together into unity in Christ, in the mystical body of Christ, we become open to the Father. We're able to say, Abba, Father, and to return to the source. The Father is the source from which all things come. And I would like to conclude with a very wonderful saying which the Guru speaks to his disciple after the sannyasa diksha. Sannyasa, you know, is the solemn renunciation of the world to seek for God alone. Kavi, as it's called, is the color of sannyasa, renunciation, recognized all over India, though not in America very much. And that signifies that you're committed to this search for God. And at the end of the ceremony, the guru says to the disciple, go, my son, across the wide spaces of the mind, go to the source, go to the unborn, yourself unborn, go to that which you have found and from which there is no returning. And that is the journey which we are setting out on, really, return to the source across the wide spaces of the mind, across the whole human experience, returning to that source. And for us, it is a return in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit may guide us all in our reflections, and our meditations, to rediscover this unity, to find ourselves in the unity of the Holy Spirit in Christ and the Father. This concludes Father Griffith's first presentation. The second, Contemplative Theology and the Experience of God, is on the next cassette in numbered order.